Hysteria is brought to you by Books. This Mother's Day, give mom her flowers. She deserves the best. That's why you should send her farm fresh flowers from Books. That's short for bouquets. And right now, you can get 25% off your entire Books purchase. Here's why everyone likes the Books company. Books is different. Their flowers are cut fresh and sourced directly from the best flower farms, so they last way longer. They even have flowers grown on the side of a volcano, which I love. Books has modern designs and unique flowers you can't find anywhere else. Books is simple. Go online, pick the delivery date, and you are done. Mother's Day is May 12th. Don't miss the chance to thank your mom. Order your books now. And with 20% off, you can send some to mom, wife, aunt, and even grandma. Erin, I love my books. I love a flower that lasts forever, and my books arrangements really do last a full solid week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have uh, I have some sitting on my kitchen table right now, mm-hmm. and they've been there for several days. And usually when I buy them at, like, the grocery store, they're sort of, like, starting to crap Fade. out pretty quickly. Yep. Not with books. They stick around. They look beautiful. I like how they kind of slowly open up and become even more beautiful as they sit on your, you know, wherever Absolutely, you Absolutely, because they're that fresh. So go to books.com and use promo code hysteria for 25% off. That's B-O-U-Q-S.com, promo code hysteria. Books, promo code hysteria. Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa, you're from a small town. I am indeed. So what was the weirdest club that you were a member of when you were growing up? The weirdest club? Let's see. I think that, what was it, National Honor Society? And I may have been a member of the Home Ec Club. Ooh, the Home Ec Club. Yeah, we weren't real clubby people up in upstate New York. People had fucking jobs after school. (laughs) Oh, okay, okay. Well, you had a job at the grocery store, right? Indeed, indeed. Was there anything weird about that? Yeah, it was like they could make a TV show about it now. (laughs) What's the weirdest thing that happened to you at your job at the grocery store? Uh, Weirdest thing that happened to me was, oh, when I had gotten blood taken, Um, the person who took my blood did a bad job and my arm was all bruised and they thought that I was on drugs. And so (laughs) the woman who was my uh, overseer, my manager, was like, you should go home. And anyway, we had to have a whole discussion about how I had had blood taken. I wasn't shooting up. Oh, my God. See, Mm -hmm. that's another reason to get blood taken from the back of your hand. Like me, the wimp who can't get blood taken from my arm. They can take it from the back of your hand? Oh, yeah. I insist on it. Yeah, they put the, like, they put the tourniquet yeah. right around my wrist, and they just, like, take it from, like, right here. But like, doesn't it base. hurt more? Yes, it does. But okay. it gives me, a, sure. gives me a greater sense of control, and psychologically, I'm able to get through it more easily. Okay. Yeah. So, um, but, yeah, the weirdest club I was a member of in high school uh, was, I was in Future Homemakers of America, but the club where I did the weirdest thing was 4-H, where I showed chickens at the county fair. And we won prizes and stuff. Okay, the 4-H booth at our county fair had the best milkshakes, hands down, hands down. Oh, yeah. 4-H kids, 4-H kids develop some practical life skills. They're, they're a little that. bit more diverse than the scouts. Yes, 100%. <laughs> this week, Grace Para and Tian Tran joined to tackle the following questions. How do we prepare for a very frustrating month in the U.S. Senate? 
What can we learn about mental health from the world of elite women's tennis? And which East Town resident deserves their own spinoff? All this and more right now. And welcome back. You're listening to Hysteria, and we are about to talk about the news. Bleh. Ugh. Bleh. <laughs> um, so specifically this week, I wanted to talk about how uh, the GOP is kind of trying to rewrite history before our eyes and how disturbing that is. Um, Alyssa, can you talk a little bit about what Republicans have done to the uh, planned bipartisan January 6th commission? Well, Aaron, it appears that once it came to a vote, for this commission, Republicans decided that there was no riot at the Capitol. Um, Republicans decided specifically that fucking goober, Louis Gobert, they're just like, those were just people. The crimes were committed against the Trump supporters. They were just peace-loving tourists who came to see him speak, and they just wanted to go see the nation's capital. I mean, like, Aaron, it's like, at this point, you don't even know what to say. And so people, whether it was Mitch McConnell or Mark Meadows, all people who shortly after the aforementioned riots were like, this is bad. Some of them even were like, yeah, Trump might have made the situation worse. Now people are just like, that never happened. And Mm -hmm. what I don't understand, except for, let's be clear, let me see if I can remember the only reasonable Republicans who did vote in favor of a January 6th bipartisan commission to investigate what happened. Mitt Romney, Mm -hmm. Lisa Murkowski, who like we should give some credit to because look, she's a Republican. She's not a Democrat. I mean, she's not going to do what we always want her to do all the time because she's actually a Republican. That bitch does the right thing a lot. She does the the right thing more than, uh, I feel, I get the impression that she does the right thing more than Senator Sinema, even though I know that she doesn't. I agree, because, well, do you want to know what the fucking difference is? Is that, you know who Lisa Murkowski is. It's like Kirsten Sinema sold us a fucking bill of goods and is now different than we thought she was. If she had been, look, the one thing you can say about Joe Manchin, we have known who he was since the beginning of time. How he acts is not a shock. It is, it is. But how, what she has been doing, like not showing up for the vote on the January 6th commission, is, you know, disturbing. But mm-hmm. there were six Republicans who voted. Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, Ben Sass, Ron Johnson. Uh, no, not Ron Johnson. Rob Portman. Ron Rob Johnson. Rob Portman. You knew exactly who I was Yes. <laughs> and who's the last one? Cassidy? Bill, Ca- Bill Cassidy, yeah. Bill Cassidy. So those are the six people who have a conscience and who also remember correctly what happened on January 6th when the rioters came to take Mike Pence. Do you wonder what Mike Pence thinks about all this? He's I don't like, think I was Mike, there. I don't they think, tried to kill me. I don't think Mike Pence thinks. Uh, it's Mike, probably true. When Mike Pence was hosting a conservative radio program back in the day, he used to write movie reviews, some of which are still available via the Internet Wayback Machine. Just Google Internet Wayback Machine. You can, like, search for Mike Pence's old. Mulan review. Uh, Read it. The man's, (laughs) inside the man's head is a bale of hay with a raccoon climbing all over it. That is Mike Pence's brain. I don't think he thinks. uh, I don't think he thinks. So that's it. That's what happened this week. They were like, yeah, I don't think it really happened. I just, despite all evidence to the contrary. And the thing that I don't understand is how they can take this position and 
still be protected on a day-to-day basis by the Capitol Police who put their lives in harm's way, who lost their lives uh, Mm -hmm. trying to protect them for, I guess, something that didn't really happen that seems fucked up. Yeah. Well, we know that the problem at the root of this is uh, it rhymes with bitch McConnell. And uh, it's Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell is the problem with, with the Senate, essentially. If Mitch McConnell weren't there... I think that this seems like kind of a no-brainer, especially because the proposed commission was truly bipartisan. Like, Mm -hmm. Nancy Pelosi watered that shit down. So it was going to be five Republicans and five Democrats. It was going to be, like, both parties have subpoena power. It was going to be the most milquetoast version of this investigation that could have existed. So they already negotiated with it. Then it got to the Senate— uh, Mitch McConnell was like, I still got some problems with stuff. Susan Collins was like, cool, I'll figure out a solution to those problems. Susan Collins actually tried to do some negotiating. She got a counterproposal done, and Mitch McConnell was like, no, 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 I didn't want you to actually negotiate. Like, this was bad faith. I, wa- I just was trying to come up with an excuse to be obstructionist once again. So, like, you know, I think if if anything, this kind of, brings to relief the fact that the Senate is a non-functional governing body. It's mm-hmm. completely non-functional at this point. And I I want people to prepare for a month of being very fucking frustrated with the Senate. Uh, because I read something about Chuck Schumer recently about how a lot of things are going to come up this month and none of them are going to pass. Uh, I think voting rights are going to come up. I think uh, the infrastructure bill is going to come up. There's a bunch of things that are just not going to pass this month. And uh, hopefully to make a point to Senators Manchin and Cinema that we have to get rid of the filibuster. Otherwise, literally nothing is going to get done. Um, Alyssa, are you doing anything to prepare for this very frustrating month in the Senate? Like, how can a person who really cares about this shit get through this next month without destroying all of their designated screaming pillows. So I I genuinely think that it's one of those times where you have to limit your social media intake because none of it's going to be productive. There's not much that you can do at this point to influence what's happening because I wanted to find something that I had seen uh, Cinema say. I just found it. Quote, Kirsten Cinema agrees the Senate isn't working well, but, quote, The way to fix that is to fix your behavior, not to eliminate the rules or change the rules, but to change the behavior. What the fuck does that mean? I don't know. And so having read that doesn't change anything. I wished I hadn't of. So I guess for me, I'm just going to try to not be on Twitter as much. That's, that's, That's the crux. Yeah. Outrage du jour can be very exhausting. I Mm -hmm. think like, I think in the final push, uh, when we're getting to important days, like election days, when we're getting to like voter registration deadline days and stuff, like little outrages can be just like, just the little kind of jet propulsion that gets you through the next day. But it's not a sustainable long-term way to exist. Um, And I think, yeah, I think it's just going to be a real frustrating summer. I think a lot of stuff is not going to get done. A lot of people are going to say a lot of really stupid shit in public. And I think a lot of what really matters is going to be happening behind closed doors and in private, and we're not going to find out about it until after the fact. Um, so I agree with you. I think that kind of going on a, a rage diet 
uh, in June is going to be something that I that I try to do. <laughs> I think it's important. I it's just I think it's important because we have other things we all have to do too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but at the same time, uh, the infrastructure plan is fucking essential. And at the end of June, if they don't keep, if they don't, you know, try try again with that, there's going to be hell to pay. And by that, I mean I'm going to get very mad and encourage all of my friends to also get mad and call and, you know, get in touch with their people and raise money for their opponents if necessary. And maybe before the 4th of July holiday, we may have a real, a real fuck that guy marathon. Yeah. Look, if they, if they pass infrastructure before 4th of July, I will consider the American flag reclaimed by the left. I will wear American (laughs) flag shit on the 4th of July without being like, are people going to think I'm a Republican? Because I will be genuinely proud of our country in that moment. If we can get that shit done. Um, I will be proud of that country for meeting the bare minimum in many ways, uh, which is a low bar to clear, but it's something that needs to happen. So Hoping that gets done. Um, one more thing I want to talk about is uh, this week, Joe Biden acknowledged the Tulsa race massacre um, in a speech where he did specific, he actually specifically called out Senator Cinema and Manchin um, as obstructions to getting systemic changes done to help rectify what happened in the Tulsa massacre. Um, Alyssa, like I've, I'm seeing a lot of people on social media and in like the political talk space, which is not a good space to spend time, talk about how they didn't learn about the Tulsa race massacre when they were growing up in school. Did you learn about it? I do remember learning something about it. I don't recall because this was 30 some years ago at this point, but I have always had an awareness of it. I always knew that it had happened and that it was bad. And I also had an awareness of it. So, you know, we've seen that in Oklahoma, I mean, it was not taught in school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 83% in a survey said they never received a full lesson uh, on the Tulsa race massacre um, or Black Wall Street in K-12. This is just among Oklahomans. Right, who where it happened. Yeah. And that when it finally was added to the curriculum in 2002, it was referred to as the Tulsa race riot, which is not what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until a couple years ago that it was mm-hmm. like properly incorporated into the curriculum. But mm-hmm. yeah, growing up in upstate New York, and then it might have been in college too, but in some point in the 90s, I learned of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I had parents that really out, went out of their way to try to make sure that we knew about civil rights history in the U.S. And they didn't really hide anything from us when it came to talking about, like, you know, the history of, like, the Confederacy or the history of oppression in the, in the States. I'd never heard of it until I was an adult. And— um, that's partly on me. You know, I should have gone out of my way to try to to, to learn about it myself, but I, I'd literally never heard of it. And it's, But it's also partly on the way that we talk about our history and kind of sand down all the parts that in any way le- would lead kids to believe that America isn't the greatest country of all time. Because um, it's really, I mean, it's... Well, I mean, it's, that's, that's the crazy argument, right? The reason they don't want to teach you know, things like critical race theories, because they're like, kids are going to grow up thinking America's fucked up and evil. And it's like, it's not evil, but it is fucked up. (laughs) Yeah. I think about it like, okay, I think about 
this is an oversimplification, but sometimes I think about my relationship with my country as I would think about a relationship with another person. And I think in Al Franken in one of his books wrote about how like there's a mature way to view another person or your own country and there's an immature way to do it. Like if I were in a relationship with the United States and the United States were a person, I would prefer to know in an on an ongoing basis about mistakes and horrors in their past rather than finding out about it and having it hidden from me. Like there's a I, I feel a sense of betrayal to have things not out in the open. Right. It's like, do you know what this reminds me of? A quote from one of my all-time faves, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, <laughs> when Kate Hudson says to Matthew McConaughey, Binky, I love you, but I don't have to like you right now. Which is like, I can love my country. It doesn't mean I have to like it all the time. Yeah. I, th- I think I dislike it a lot of the time. And the more that I know, the more that I learn, the more that I'm like, this sucks. And like, I... I will feel better about liking the country on an ongoing basis if we start to address ongoing problems in a way that's honest. You know, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, if I if I were injured, if I injured my ankle and just kept like running around on it, being like, no, my ankle's not hurt, it's fine. That's gonna turn into like a gangrene and you're gonna have to yeah. take my foot off. Like we need to acknowledge the injuries. We need to treat the injuries. I think that Oklahomans who are descended from the 100 to 300 victims of the Tulsa race massacre are entitled to reparations. I agree. I totally, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that that Native Americans who had their land stolen from them are entitled to reparations in some form. And it's it's an uncomfortable thing it, for people to talk about. It might mean that people that had people that were not personally directly responsible for the injustice end up having to pay a bill. But this country is a country founded on the idea of one generation writing checks on behalf of future generations. So like, you know, this might be our bill to pay. And I, I'm okay. The Germans found a way to do it. Yeah, the Germans found a way to do it. I feel like that is is going to be a tough hill to climb, but it's one that we, we're going to have to climb eventually because it's there. And that's the only way, <laughs> the only way out is through, you know? Yeah, I agree. Um, okay, well, I think that's about, I want to talk about, I want to talk more about like the sad state of abortion rights in this country we could talk about that every single week. Let's let's punt that to next week. Okay. Pennsylvania's up to some dumb shit. As usual. It sucks because Pennsylvania should be a blue state. It's just been gerrymandered all to hell. Mm-hmm. It ugh. Anyway, we'll we'll get more into that next week. Um, do we have any toasts or roasts this week? I don't think so. I feel like it was a toast neutral. Toast. Well, if, yeah, I think it was a toast neutral week. <laughs> a toast neutral week, indeed. I think we are going to offer like a toast to Venus Williams in the next segment. Because. Because. Yes, that's. Because you know why. Because you guys know why. Um, but we'll get to that after we take a quick break.
This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Power up your life with superior brain and body nutrition products from IQ Bar. Their plant protein bars are the perfect low-carb breakfast. Their IQ Mix zero-sugar hydration drinks replenish electrolytes. And their IQ Joe mushroom coffees will keep you focused all day long. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. Their ultimate sampler pack includes all three. IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. All their products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners. And today, Hysteria listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text HYSTERIA to 64000. One thing I love about IQ Bar is, first of all, right now it's really dry where I am. Oh, okay. It is hard for me to stay hydrated. I, mean, I just like, I, I'll just be going through my day and I'll be like, why am I so like... Parched. I'm parched. I'm in a bad mood. I feel like I'm going to pass out. And it's, ah, you got to drink some water. You got to stay hydrated. I really like their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks because it allows me to rehydrate myself at a time yeah. when I feel like the atmosphere is trying to take all my moisture away. Well, and sometimes you need more than just water. Sometimes you need more more than just water. I also love IQ bars because I love a portable breakfast. I love a grab-and-go breakfast, no dishes. Love something I can walk around holding and eating. I like something I can eat in my car without endangering the lives of me and every other motorist on the road. A breakfast burrito, <laughs> not, not the safest thing to eat behind the wheel. IQ bar, go ahead and do it. Good for you. Great ingredients. Helps you stay focused and alert throughout the day. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and you don't have to dirty any dishes. Refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text Hysteria to 64000. Get your discount. Text Hysteria to 64000. That's H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. And welcome back. You are listening to Hysteria, which is a podcast to listen to while plotting to take over the world or cleaning out liquefied onions from the bottom of your vegetable drawer. I know you've done both. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I think, Alyssa, you personally have done both. I have. I have. I really love cleaning out my vegetable drawer. Really? I do. It's very satisfying. (laughs) But I bet yours never gets dirty. You guys, I'm not perfect. No, but like if you love cleaning up the drawer, I bet you do it with more regularity than No, me. because if you do it too regularly, there's no uh, gratification. Oh, okay. Mm. Wow. This is something I'm learning about you for Just the first time. Just buy too many shallots for the Allison Roman shallot pasta recipe and <laughs> wait. <laughs> yeah, I mean, shallots, will, shallots are pretty like quick to, to really exactly. turn on you. Exactly. They're like Scorpios. <laughs> um, okay, let's bring in the two women that I'm really excited to have a conversation with today. First, she is a writer and comedian representing the Midwest, Tien Tran. Hello. Um, Tien, I want to wish you a happy pride, but not like in a oh Target God, Pride yes. collection way, like in a like friend to friend kind of a way. Thank you. 
You know, it's always so good to go from Asian American Heritage Month to Pride. It's just a nonstop party for me to go from <laughs> to go from Women's History Month to AAPI Month to Pride, and then you can forget about me for the second half of the year. So. <laughs> wow, it's like a three month just you just are so, so appreciated by the end. You have to go on like an appreciation <laughs> cleanse where you go somewhere where people are just rude yeah. for like a week to just like just go outside cleanse that all out. <laughs> do, you have, yeah. do you have any uh any plans to like are you gonna go to any like celebrations or parades or anything? Uh, no, because I'm still a little nervous about being around crowds, but, uh, Mm -hmm. I know that there, I think there's some queer shows that are coming out. Maybe I just saw the trailer for the L word generation Q and I have a lot of feelings about that show, but I'll watch the hell out of it. And, um, (laughs) I think it comes out in August. So I'll, that'll be my pride. I'll extend my pride to August is I'll wait and watch that entire show. (laughs) Uh, you'll get a month off of like, of like celebration months and then you'll go back. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. I'll probably watch that show too, just because um, as somebody who's not in the queer community, I am, I love watching things that give me exposure to things that I do not know about. And I'm like, that is going to be, I'm going to learn so much. I am like such a positive Midwestern Karen <laughs> in that way. Okay. <laughs> Um, up next, she is a writer, actress, activist, but first and foremost, a Texan. You know and love her, Grace Para. Grace, you're in Texas right now. Howdy, y'all. <laughs> I'm in Texas. Here's a, actually, I just realized I'm looking around me right now, the most Texan thing perhaps that I have ever owned in my life is a $10 mega loteria lottery ticket. I love a scratcher. Oh my God. Shout out to all my scratcher friends, my, uh, my mom and my husband and I went to the grocery store this morning and spent a pretty penny on some scratchers. Lost most of the money, but that's okay. Was- we had fun. <laughs> we had fun on the journey. Um, but yeah, the uh, the uh, the scratcher game in Texas is on point, I got to say. What is it themed with anything? Yeah, the theme. So this one is Loteria themed. Okay. The one that I'm staring at right now, which was $10, which is a lot for a scratcher. But it also took like 35 minutes to scratch off. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Okay. It's your day. It's your day. What was what's the grand prize? The grand prize on this one is $250,000. Wow. Quarter million for a scratcher is quite a bit, that's, I think. Wow. Really no, yeah. that seems like a lot. I mean, seems like not a lot for a $10 card. Yeah. I feel like the payoff should be a bit high. <laughs> yeah, like $250,000 is about enough to lose a bid on a house. Yeah. You have that for a down payment. <laughs> <laughs> on one studio apartment house in Los yeah, Angeles. Yeah, right. Like a shed with a one shed. wall that is like sort of, they're, they're calling it French doors, but it's just the wall falls off sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we're, we're really glad that you guys are both here. Um, today, I really wanted to get into something that has been in the news a lot this week. And I let me preface by saying, I don't think anybody in the entire world understands tennis less than me. Um, I don't get the rules. I have had them. It's complicated. Yeah, I've had them explained to me so many times. As far as I can see, you have to serve it diagonally and get it in bounds. And then you hit it back, but you're you're not supposed to hit it out of bounds or hit the net or something. I don't know. Nailed it. Crushed it. That's about it. Yeah, thank you. Um, it is a really exciting game to watch, though. And one of the most exciting players in the most exciting game is Naomi Osaka, who is the number two ranked 
female tennis player in the world. Um, This week, Osaka announced that she was going to drop out of the French Open after she decided not to do press availability before an early match and then um, decided again that she... um, because she didn't want to do the press availability, she felt like she was being a distraction. Um, and then she explained that her anxiety and um, her mental health needed to be prioritized in this situation, and she was going to take some time away from the court. And that, you know, I think most people who responded to her deciding to drop out of the French Open were supportive. I think um, Serena Williams had some nice mm-hmm. things to say. Venus Williams came out with the fire this morning. <laughs> yeah, oh, my God, yeah. I think we have sound from that. We're going to play that for you right now. For me personally, how I quote, how I deal with it was that I know every single person asking me a question can't play as well as I can and never will. So no matter what you say or what you write, you'll never light a candle to me. So that's how I deal with it. Um, But each person deals with it differently. Yeah, that was Venus lighting the entire tennis press on fire with her mouth. Uh, Just incredible, incredible. Um, But the thing is, like, you know, most people are supportive of Osaka's decision to withdraw for mental health purposes. But, you know, there are people who feel like they need to be contrarian or people who are just straight up non-empathetic, who have said, you know, this is what you sign up for. The press availability is part of it. You just got to suck it up. I've seen a couple people talk about um, how it's impossible to have made $55 million in a year and then also have mental health issues, which doesn't make any sense. Because if you could buy- Dude, mo money, mo problems, honestly. Yeah, right. But if you could buy your way out of mental health problems, like, sweet, we solved it. Awesome. That's, <laughs> we figured it out, guys. But uh, it, it's it's not something you can buy your way out of. So I really wanted to talk about like the way that uh, we handle ourselves when we've gotten to a point where some of the demands of our jobs are pushing us beyond our limits mentally. How do we handle that? And, you know, how should we handle it when other people decide that they need to take some time to tend to their mental health. So, Tian, I've seen you posting a little bit about this on social media. I would love to hear what your thoughts are on the Naomi Osaka story specifically. I mean, to answer, I think with empathy, like uh, what's so interesting about Naomi is that she is such a wonderful role model in that she has been very vocal about the things that she cares about. And I think taking care of your mental health is something that only in the past few years, I think performers, anyone in the public eye has really started to talk about like how important it is for all of us to take care of not only our bodies, but also our minds as well. And the people who are out there that are like, oh my gosh, it's part of the job. You're an athlete. You signed up for this. Just do your job, suck it up and do it. You know, I was reading that like so much of the relationship between leagues and press and media is discussed and organized without the involvement of athletes and what that means to them and like if it's healthy for them, if it's if it's a good thing for athletes to participate or it's another sort of like almost like labor issue of like people, employees are being asked to do something without the full consent and or full involvement of being a part of that conversation of what that actually looks like. And I think what Naomi is bringing up by taking care of herself first 
is that we need to have a conversation about the changes that need to take place in situations like this. Um, With athletics, and I think in any field, it was predominantly white, cis, and male. And I think when you're getting questions as like a woman of color in a predominantly very racist, sexist sport, if they're being asked to continue to do this, I think journalists and press need to be asked to like, I don't know, take a critical race theory class. Like let's all improve mm-hmm. how we are interacting with each other, with all the information that's available and all the conversations and, you know, general empathy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, something that occurred to me was that, okay, so if Naomi Osaka had been like, I hurt my elbow and I can't play. We wouldn't be like, show me your elbow. Mm-hmm. I demand yeah. to see. I don't believe you. I don't believe that you're hurt and you can't play. Playing when you hurt a little bit is part of the job. But like, mm-hmm. why don't we do that with mental health? Go ahead, Grace. What struck me as most brave about Naomi's move is the fact that she called out step, the need to step away as a reaction to a need for her own mental health. In other words, the phrase mental health was in mm-hmm. conversation. I was thinking back that there have absolutely been times in my life, like in middle school, high school, where I was just like, Ugh, I can't even, like maybe I was too busy with, I remember one example, uh, I was doing like a community theater uh, play of some kind in high school and I was concurrently I'm already in a play. exhausted. I know <laughs> so much. And I was concurrently taking all these like AP classes and I was concurrently okay, in a band, and I was concurrently, I know. <laughs> oh flex. my God. It was all too much. It was all too much. And I told my mom, like, I'm overwhelmed. And she was like, well, just lie and say that your grandma died. And I was like, brilliant. So I just told the community theater, like, I'm so sorry. I'm like distraught because my grandma died. And that was basically me stepping away from something because I needed to have a mental health period. But I didn't say that. And what's what's awesome and what's mm-hmm. brave about the period that we have started to broach, we haven't fully, fully embedded ourselves yet in this era, but we've started to just come right out and say, I don't need to lie. I don't need to pretend kill somebody in my family. I can just say right. what what's happening, which is that I need to take a step a step back for my own sanity. Um, that mm-hmm. is what's super brave about it, mm-hmm. and I I am so, I admire Naomi so much. In fact, so much so that when I first read about the hoopla, I was like, I don't get why anybody has a problem with this a- at all. I, I didn't understand it. Right? Yeah, I thought that was I thought that was really like. I think the 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 firing back of like, well, it's part of the game. It's like, yeah, it's part of the game. That's why Naomi Osaka is stepping away. Because the press availability thing is part of the game, and she's decided, I don't want to play this game. Like, she understands that it's part of the game. Um, Alyssa, I know that you have had um, your mental health play a role in making career decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you feel about the Naomi Osaka story, and, and how does it relate to, like, decisions that you've made with your own career? Well, so I think that a lot of times, well, one— One of the things that I think is very interesting about this story is that there are so many ways to have avoided it. Like, not on her end, but Chris Everett was on television last night talking about this. And she had literally so many good suggestions that you're like, why has the Tennis Association, like, never fucking done any of this? Which is that the issue, which Naomi was specific about, is that during the press availabilities, they don't just ask about tennis. They ask about your mental state. They ask about things that are not related to tennis. And so Chris Everett actually talked about how she, after losing a match in the mid-1970s, 
laid on her floor in her hotel room and didn't leave for three days. And that there were times when she struggled Mm -hmm. so much. And she said, and the thing is, is that like all you have to do, like at these press conferences, one of the easiest things to do would be to have a moderator and have the moderator shut down so the player doesn't have to do it. Have the moderator shut down that's not specifically Mm -hmm. related to the game and to only allow tennis reporters in because so many of them now are these tabloid reporters. So like everything Naomi's saying basically everyone agrees with um, and is a problem. But for me, with my, you know, mental health from time to time in my jobs, I mean, I left because I knew it wasn't good for me. I saw changes in my personality. I saw changes in my body. Um, And I was like, there's got to be something else I can do that's not this. And because there are just places that when you get there, you realize like, a square peg in a round hole. Like how these people thrive and survive is not how I thrive and survive. And it is a position of privilege to be able to make those decisions. But it's why whenever I give mostly women advice, I'm always like, when you finally start making a little bit of money, don't buy yourself something fancy. Put that shit in savings Mm -hmm. so that you can always have the net to be able to leave a situation that's really bad for you. And luckily for Naomi, she does. I mean, she earned $55 million last year. She can tell the tennis world to go fuck off right now because they need her more than mm-hmm. she needs them. Mm-hmm. That's such a good point. Uh, Tian, you you seemed like you wanted to say something. Oh, I was just like, yes, Alyssa, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have well, you ever like, have you ever left something because you were like, this is, ruining my brain or like this is making me feel like shit like do you remember anything like that happening in your life um I mean with specifically with a certain comedy institution in Chicago um (laughs) it was it was both a dream to be there like it had always been my goal to like perform on that stage but after a year of performing nonstop, like eight times a week and like realizing that like some of the things that I was doing on that stage put me in a vulnerable position with the audience and my employers did not care. Um, I had to leave after a year. Like my partner was even like, oh, you were really depressed during that time of like performing for a year. And, and I like couldn't, didn't even realize it. Cause to me, I was like, oh, I'm just sleeping until whatever. And then waking up and taking a last minute Uber to the place and just like running through the motions of performing. Um, and so I, even though I didn't have anything lined up at all, I was like, I can't do this for another year. Um, and I think it's something that is, interesting about this Naomi story and like with Serena Williams and, you know, any of the people that are breaking, like women of color that are breaking into places that are predominantly white, like at this theater, they had a history of only having all white casts. And this theater also wanted you to kind of like put your point of view and who you are as a person out on that stage. For me, I'm a queer Asian woman of color happy three last months. And I, <laughs> and like audiences sometimes responded in really gross, racist, sexist ways. And sometimes it's just, I, I remember my bosses were kind of like, that's just heckling. And I'm like, that level of heckling is not the same as when you have like 
Jim Belushi up on stage doing stuff that is like not personally or emotionally taxing to them as a person. Um, And so I left and it was the best decision like to leave in that situation because it is so Mm -hmm. important. Your mental health is so important. Yeah. Have you watched the new Bull Burnham special? Yeah. No, but I can't wait. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that, you know, he's totally different background from UTN, but I think in that, Bo Burnham is a, is a comedian who was sort of like a comedy prodigy and jump in if I'm, if I'm wrong about him. No, he is. Comedy, comedy (laughs) prodigy started performing when he was like 16, just really does a lot of like musical comedy stuff. Um, and, uh, but like, I like it. I don't normally like musical comedy stuff, but I like the Bo Burnham stuff. Anyway, he, he filmed a special during pandemic in this one room and he did it himself. There's nobody else in the special. And it is basically, uh, all about him being like really, really depressed and feeling aimless and horrible. And at the end of it, this comedy special, there's information on how to, mm-hmm. how to like contact help if you are feeling like self-destructive or suicidal. And uh, it's really, it's a good, I don't know if it's, it's funny sort of, but then it's also very not funny sort of. And just watching, it's, it's just watching somebody just completely only hold on by a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a part where he says like, I'm not doing well. And he starts crying and he just like lets the camera go. And it's really, uh, I feel like a lot of people who have been pushed to the edge or who feel like, you know, they're they're at the end of their rope mentally, I feel like that'll be really valuable for them, for them to see um, because so much of that is just done kind of quietly, you know, in a bed until like 12 underneath the covers being like, I don't want to wake up. You know, it's mm-hmm. done in like these rooms and to have it out in public, I think is like pretty helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know how, I hope Bo Burnham is okay. <laughs> After that, I was yeah. like, I hope he has like, my husband was like, I, I think he should get a dog. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, well, one, uh, one of the, the things I've read about the special that I'm I'm really excited to, to see play out is that he films all this in one room, right? So he really, yeah. which is how many of us live through the pandemic and very, mm-hmm. very concentrated um, spaces. You know, I was thinking about examples in my life where, where I have had to put my mental health first. Uh, and, and one example, the most prominent example that came to mind also had to do with space and geography. And for me, it was stepping away from New York City, mm-hmm. which uh, is a city that I had lived in. I went to college there and really loved it when I was there for college. And I spent a few years there right after college. And for my career purposes, I've had to go back and forth, sometimes indefinitely, sometimes going and not knowing when I was going to come back. Um, and a few years ago, I had to put a stop to that because it was too taxing to live in that city. And I know that it's got its its advantages. And I know we have lots of people who live in New York and absolutely love it. But for me, it was a city that felt like it played to parts of my parts of my parts of my personality that were just the worst. I mean, running high on caffeine, drinking all the time, um, you know, the cold weather and having to be involved, having to be outside in it constantly. Uh, public transportation subways were really tough for me too. Yeah. Uh, and it's it started, it, it became a, an issue of of uh, me feeling like I had to sacrifice my happiness in order to take work opportunities that presented themselves 
in New York. Um, and I, I ultimately was like, you know what? I am happier and I feel like I flourish more in Los Angeles and in warmer climates and in climates where I can drive and have a little bit more space to myself. Uh, I needed that. So for anyone out there who's experiencing something similar, like, like Alyssa mentioned, it's, it's a place of privilege to be able to say, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to move to this city, but it was something that I felt like I had to do. Um, because it was just too taxing for me. Yeah, living in New York, honestly, unless you're super rich, uh, unless you're rich and you can afford to, to avoid some of the the inconveniences that 95% of the people have to live with. It's like being a child actor in the 30s, like uppers to wake up, downers to go <laughs> yes. to sleep. You're putting yes. in 16-hour days. Yes. Like, you're <laughs> not eating healthy. You're oh, working no. constantly, but you're like, am I doing good? I think I'm doing good. Yep, and then you yep. leave and you're like, it's going to take me a year to recover yeah. from the time that I spent there. I was, when I was in New York, I moved there in like 2011 or 2012, and I was making $45,000 a year blogging. Oh, oh my and, gosh. And I blogged, yeah, and I negotiated that up from the initial offer that I got. Yeah, I was blogging, but it was my dream job because it was my first writing job and I could leave banking. And I was like, I will live in Oscar the Grouch's extra trash can if it means that I can live in, in New York. You know, I was so determined to be there. And also that would be awesome. I would currently live in Oscar the Grouch's extra trash can. Um, I feel like he and I would be friends. Um, but anyway, I, you know, I, I moved there and, you know, it was exciting because I was working towards something, but eventually I reached a place of like mental health. Like I was, I was out of everything. I and I was working at a feminist blog and part of the the publishing schedule was we published every 15 minutes. And so some days I had to put things like eight or nine things up with my name on them. And sometimes it was just a paragraph, but sometimes it was like multiple pieces and you know none of us really had the resources to like have everything be like thoroughly edited so there were like typos in there and it was always embarrassing and you know it was like there was a point where, oh, and then also we had a very vibrant com- comment section, most of which was <laughs> vibrant is, is a generous word. Gentle. Gentle. You know, term. you guys will be surprised how many people from that comment section have gone on to have very important careers. I can oh name God. a few people in Hollywood and how <gasps> mean they were in the comment oh, section. Oh nice God. and nice in person, mean online was a whole look. From oh like God. 2009 to 2014, that was like a way of being, it was a personality. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it was like we were just constantly getting shit from our from our de- loyal fans who wanted us to be better versions of ourselves. So it was like mean criticism coming from a place of like we disappointed them. And then we had like the <laughs> shitty uh, like men who just hated us because they hate all women and women who speak up about things that have to do with making women's lives better. Uh, we were the worst, you know? So I was getting rape threats all the time. I was getting Mm. death threats occasionally. Uh, Nobody ever followed through, but, you know, I was getting them. And it just kind of like was just always, it it just got to a point where I was just like, I can't, I fucking Mm -hmm. can't. I Like there is no, no salary would be enough to like deal with that amount of pressure, especially coming in, not being like mentally callous enough to be able to handle it. Like at this point in my career, I think that I've I'm damaged enough in the right 
places in my brain <laughs> that I can deal with a lot more than I could deal with at that point. But it became a point where like when I left that job for the first time, which was like early 2013, um, I did eventually come back because if there's anything I can't learn, it's my lesson. Um, <laughs> but I, I like when I first left that job in early 2013, I was like, thank God I'm out of here. Um, but when I heard the Naomi Osaka story, I was like, look, I'm not, I wasn't like the number two ranked blogger in the world or anything like that. You know, there weren't millions of people waiting to see me do anything. But even at that smaller scale, I was so just burned out, you know. Can I ask a question about that phase in your life? At what yeah. point, at what point did you notice that you felt like you were pushing through because to push through meant that you were confident and strong and not weak? Um, well, it's sort of like running up a hill, like mm -hmm. when you're, you, you know, you're sort of like, look, I have to get to the top of this hill. And if I stop, it's just going to make it longer between now and when I'm done with this. So it was like this mindset of like, I just have to just push through it. Like yeah, stop, yeah. stopping to take a break is just going to prolong the unpleasantness or like running a long distance is the same mm -hmm. like mentality is like, well, I have to get there, so I might as well just get there rather mm -hmm. than, like, take breaks. Even though taking breaks is very important and, like, yes. taking time off is very important. Um, but, yeah, that was—it was one of those things where I just, like, didn't take enough time off. And I think that there was a day where I got done with work at, like, 6.30 p.m., and I was living in— uh, Cobble Hill in Brooklyn, which mm. if you know New York City, it's like an area that is not far from the bridges. It's like in South Brooklyn, kind of near, not far from the Brooklyn Bridge, walkable from the Brooklyn Bridge. And I walked from my office in Soho and I was like, I'm going to walk to the train station. And I just like walked right past the train station. And before I knew it, I'd sort of entered this like fugue state and I was walking across the bridge and I walked all the way home. And that was like the best part of my day mm. because I wasn't like looking at people on the internet telling me to fuck off and die. And I was like, maybe I should, maybe I need to make some changes around here. <laughs> um, Alyssa, can you speak to, I know that when you ended your time in the White House, part of it was because you were like, I've reached the end. Like, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so I had been going nonstop since really since about 2000, late 2002. I worked on the Kerry campaign, which, you know, not a lot of people remember, but it was a fucking ball buster. And we lost, which is a fucking mm -hmm. ball buster. Mm -hmm. And then I went and worked for Barack Obama, who, you know, I, I interviewed with him after he won his election for the United States Senate. And even then, the year and a half I was in the Senate office before I went over to work on the uh, campaign, or however long it was, um, we were still just doing tons of stuff. It's like Hurricane Katrina happened. He was in the middle of that. Like, he was, you know, like, it was always this, like, let's do more, let's do more. And so after, uh, again, a hard-fought primary season and then getting to the White House, um, by 20, I'm also just like, just preface this. I'm just a very fucking responsible person in every way. And after 2012, you know, like we got through the reelect and I, uh, as that's happening, Hurricane Sandy happens and I'm like, don't worry, I won't sleep for 10 days. I will take on the anxiety of disbanding <laughs> treaties that had been in place since the 1800s just because I think it's the right thing to do. And I told Barack Obama after that, President Obama, I said, look, I am starting to run on empty. You know, I'm starting to run on empty. And he was like, look, you're just going to 
you should take a vacation as long as you need, recharge, figure out like what you need and we can change things. And which was so, and he meant that. He wasn't trying to gloss over what I was telling him. He was sincerely saying, you have earned a break. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like I, we hit a debt ceiling or the government shut down. I can't fucking remember, <laughs> but something terrible happened. <laughs> and then I made it and I, uh, you know, I just started feeling like a dick. And I've like, rep- I've, I've apologized to people, even though I know I probably didn't have to. I just was at the end of my rope. I saw people giving ideas and I was like, fucking, we did that four years ago. It sucked. Or we did that already two years ago and like, we shouldn't (laughs) do it again. Or, you know, people, (laughs) someone came into a staff meeting once and was like, hey, Alyssa. And I'm like, if you're about to ask me about your fucking parking pass, (laughs) one of the worst one of the worst parts of my job, not worst, but, you know, I, if you ask any, if Favreau or Tommy or Rhodes or Pfeiffer, they'll all tell you that we, our jobs were high-low. On the one hand, you're, you know, at the top, you know, dealing with the most important things, but all of us had garbage components to our job. And one of mine was dealing with who got to have West executive oh parking God. passes, which are the be-all, end-all. And this person came in and was like, hey, Alyssa. And I'm like, if you're about to ask me about your fucking parking pass, and he was like, no, I was just going to say I saw you got a new car. (laughs) I was like, oh, okay, fine. And that is not who I am. It's not who I've ever been, this, like, short-tempered person. And so I realized that there was no moderating the job. Right? In the same way that Naomi was like, you know what? There's no fucking making it a halfway here. I just got to fucking tap out right now. And for me, that's how it Mm -hmm. was. No matter how much I would have liked to be like, I'm going to be going to bed at nine. I'm not going to be checking my BlackBerry after seven. You know, like that just was not uh, reasonable. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to leave because I know that in my DNA, I can't have a job and not give 150%. And Mm -hmm. I physically couldn't give 150% anymore. And then I left. And the truth is that after all of those years of essentially running on adrenaline, I just, you know, I thought being in there and being stressed out was bad. Well, going off a cliff of depression was not much better once Mm -hmm. I did go. But, you know, the thing is, if I had at the time— you know, years and years later, I did David Axelrod's podcast and he said, Alyssa, I wish we had all talked about this because so many people when they left experienced the same thing and you just feel alone. Mm-hmm. You know, you've been so vital to this organization or you think uh, for a long time. And then guess what? You fucking leave and the world keeps turning. You know, nothing stops. And so I was like, oh, my God, I never mattered. It didn't matter. And, uh, you know, I was super, super depressed. And back then I didn't, you know, I I wasn't on medicine or anything. I just watched a lot of HGTV. But that's the <laughs> – once I got me- – once I found medicine, it was a lot better. But, no, that was, you know, that was – That was it. I just, you can, and that's when I say, and like we said, it's a position of privilege to be able to say, I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. I know that everything that is true to me is changing. Like, Mm -hmm. how I act is changing. How I feel is changing. Like, my stomach's in knots. And so, you know, that was, that was the end. That was it. I hope to go back someday with little responsibility, but a good title. (laughs) (laughs) That's the dream, right? (laughs) I just make me the weeds are. Let's legalize that shit federally. (laughs) Let me go to a state dinner and call it a day. (laughs) We just need to figure out somebody in this like extended hysteria universe who's going to run for office successfully. It's not going to be me. I've said too many wild things online, but not it. You know, and then just. (laughs) 
We got to find somebody. We're going to find somebody to run for office, and then we'll we will all be important staffers with uh, dedicated staffs um, who we treat well. And that brings me to my final mm-hmm. point. Uh, I think all of us have been in positions where we have been the ones bossed around, and then we've been also ones who are in positions to supervise people. And I would love to hear as just kind of final thoughts for this conversation. Um, what are some ways that people are who are supervisors can be in tune with people that they're, you know, their charges, I guess? And uh, what are some ways that they can promote mental health and be understanding um, among people that they're that that they oversee? Part of what I have made a point of doing over the years is not trying when I see people struggle is not to be like, well, when I was your age, I had to do fucking 10 times as much and fucking fuck off, you pussy piece of shit. Now, look, there are some times in which that is true, but that's not where I start anymore. You Mm -hmm. know, that like, well, I made $20,000 a year and I worked 15 hours a day. Well, the truth is I probably shouldn't have had to do that and shouldn't want anyone Mm -hmm. else to have to do that. And so that would be my thing is that especially when you are a supervisor, it means you've lived through some shit and try to put yourself in their shoes, not try to make them ascend to, you know, put them in your shoes where, you know, you had been 15 years earlier. Right. Don't you Um, want the system to be better? Like if you want the system to be better, you have to make it better for them. And so that means that they're not going to have it as hard as you. And that means you're doing a good job if they don't have it as hard as you. I'll add, I'll add add to Alyssa's point too. This happened just yesterday in my writer's room. It was like half an hour before we tend to come to an end at the end of the day. And uh, my fabulous showrunner, Mike McMahon, was just like, well, we could keep thinking about this but I'm kind of sleepy, so let's call a day. And we were like, yes, that's great. And and it's not, you know, he didn't make a huge point of like, oh my God, I like need time for myself or whatever. It's just the fact that we saw the person who runs this show saying, hey, I need a little time. And, and we can learn by experience, you know, for supervisors, don't feel like you need to be a hero and that you need to be the be all and end all and that you need to be plugged in 24 seven because you don't have to either. And it's important that everybody else who works underneath you learns by example. So the more transparent that they are about needing time, whether it's something as simple as like, yeah, I'm kind of sleepy, let's call it a day. Or whether it's like, you know what, I'm dealing with this thing. So you guys figure out whatever be assignment. Um, I, I really respond to that when I hear mm-hmm. about what's going on in my supervisor's lives and when they're transparent about spending time with their family and making time for things outside of work, that really puts me at ease. It makes me feel like I can also in turn talk about the time that I need to take with my family or the time that I need to take to just, you know, relax or whatever it may be uh, to be as sharp as possible for the job. Mm -hmm. Tian, do you want to close us out? I mean, just piggybacking off of what Alyssa and Grace have said, I think the other thing too that I've learned from being a part of this show called Work in Progress, which was run by um, Abby McEnany, who's like the star and creator of the show, and Lily Wachowski. The show itself is about mental health. And to, I think I was very spoiled going into this writer's room because they also just fostered like a very kind and generous and tender environment, which I think when you're, you know, from stories about being in comedy and being in writer's rooms, there are people that are like, you hear stories about people like yelling and screaming at each other and like being mean to each other and like kind of maybe bullying each other in these rooms. And I think something that really helps with folks' mental health and was mine as a as a person who was writing on that show is that it really felt actually like a safe space, like mm-hmm. a kind and generous, like we would have check-ins every morning about how everyone was doing. We had like a mental health hour that you could just go and do anything you wanted to in addition to lunch. Just like 
there are, there's time to take in the day to take care of each other that I think that we need to just keep acknowledging that there is time for stuff, that, mm-hmm. that there's time to get work done and also to balance taking care of your, of your mental health and to mm-hmm. do so in a kind space is, makes it better. Oh, yeah. I think that the main thing that I've learned about bossing from being bossed is uh, the most important things that I think a person who's like a supervisor can do, especially if it's in like a female heavy space. I've been very, sorry, men, but I've been very lucky to be in many female heavy spaces. I just prefer to work um, around women. Mm-hmm. It, I just I just love it. I think they're just the best. Um, but one thing that I've learned with working with women is uh, a boss should not try to be too cool or too perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, do, don't like, I don't like think it's a good idea to just be uh, the person who is, leading the charge and the drama in the office. You shouldn't be like the ringleader of the drama, Mm -hmm. but you also should like, you know, be a human being, Mm -hmm. have like, like expose yourself as a person that has some weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though that might not be how you fought your way up the chain, you have to, you have to do it if you're going to make it easier for the people who come after you is be someone who's like open with the fact that you have weaknesses. Um, Don't let the weaknesses be the star, but acknowledge that they're there. And the second thing I've realized is it makes a huge difference for me when someone gives me space to tap out. I'm usually less likely to tap out. Mm -hmm. If someone is like, are you okay? If you don't want to do this, you don't have to do this. Like, I'm more likely to be like, oh, this person has my back. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep doing it because I know that like, if I need to tap out, I can't. For some, for some reason that works on me psychologically to like, it makes me more able to do the work if I know that the person mm-hmm. like actually gives a shit about me. Um, so those are my two bossing and being boss things. Like, don't try to be too cool. I, and I'm just saying that because I'm getting old now and I can't be cool anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Hard same. Hard I can't same. do it. I can't. Dude, it's I exhausting. Need for yourselves, okay? I'm just going to try my hardest. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tia, and you like, you kind of like register younger. So like you're very yes, youthful. Yes, yes, yes. So yes, you can, yes. <laughs> so you can pull it off. Great. Um, Okay, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, I think we're going to do a fight club this week, guys. It's going to be like a genial fight club. But uh, we're going to talk about something that everyone has been talking about, and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. Mixed with blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar for the perfect balance of sweet, salty, and sour every time. Discover legendary taste with Cayman Jack, America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back. We have reached the Mayor of Easttown segment of the show. <laughs> uh, we normally do Sanity Corner or we do uh, we do. I Feel Petty, but this week we were all kind of talking about Mayor of Easttown. I think Alyssa is the head of the Mayor of Easttown Brigade, so we're going to talk about that. Before we do that, a tiny bit of housekeeping. 
Folks, we want to hear from you. We love hearing from you. Do you guys remember how we used to do the Hill I'll Die On and we would have listeners submit their hills? I love, uh, you know, the Hill to Die On became something we had to retire for a lot of good reasons or at least temporarily. Yeah. But I love hearing what people care about that's crazy. Yeah. And I and I love uh, hearing people being able to like channel their rage or frustration into small 30-second sound bites. It's just like, it's very gratifying for me to listen to. Um, so with, with that being said, we are opening up Fuck That Guy to listener submissions. I can't believe we didn't do this before. It's, I feel like this is, you know, like in the movie Apollo 13 when they think it's going to crash and they're like, uh, I actually think it's going to be our finest hour. I think this could be our finest call out ever. I, because absolutely. I think there are a lot of fucking fuck that guys out there. Yes. Okay. So what we want to hear about are public figures of any gender, because as we've established on the show, any gender can be a guy and fuck that guy. Um, pick a public figure that you think should fuck all the way off. We want to hear it in a 30-second voice memo, which you can record on your phone, explaining why your nominee deserves to be in the annals of fuck that guy. And then you send it to hysteria at crooked.com. That is hysteria at crooked.com. Alyssa, what are some examples of like good fuck that guy targets? I mean, look, any person that's just been pissing you the hell off is a great person. I mean, it could be your fucking county coroner for all we care. We want to know what they're doing wrong and probably why they don't deserve the job they have. Yes. I think like public officials that are fucking up are our main targets of fuck that guy. It can be, honestly, are you from a town of 300 people? Is the mayor really fucking up? I love hyper-local drama. As a small-town native— Couldn't agree more. Hyper-local drama. But also, if you're from another country, we have a lot of international listeners. If you have a fuck-that-guy from your own country that you want to call out, we would love to hear it. Um, You can do a fuck-that-guy of your congressman, of uh, the head of your school board. Totally. Anything that you want to call out. If they are a public— figure and you believe that they should fuck off, you should tell us about it and you might hear it on a future episode. Okay, the house has been kept. We are going to talk about the HBO Max show, Mayor of Easttown, just to preface. If you haven't seen it already, Alyssa and I give some minor spoilers. They are minor spoilers, not major spoilers. And in my opinion, it won't diminish from enjoying the show. But if you are a spoiler purist, you might want to skip this part. Alyssa, I'm going to let you do the honors and lead this Mayor of Easttown discussion. So just to preface real quick, Grace and Tian have not seen Mayor of Easttown. Not once. Alyssa and I watched it like we were Taylor Swift fans trying to decipher her Instagrams. <laughs> like, <laughs> obsessively. Uh, may, I think the only person that I can think of that watched it more obsessively than Alyssa Mastromonaco was maybe Akila Hughes from What A Day. Um <laughs> who, you know, she's a great resource. Some of the tweets that she made about the the show are hilarious. Alyssa, I'm going to hand it off to you. Talk to us about Mayor of Easttown. Fucking Mayor of Easttown. So first, let's be clear. I was a little hesitant because I'm like, this looks kind of dark. And so I got on the bandwagon like two weeks after it had started. I couldn't get enough. Everything (laughs) about it. First of all, Kate Winslet nails the Pennsylvania accent. The, so the It is unbelievable. My husband is from outside Philadelphia. I have heard the accent, not from members of his family, of course. 
Um, but <laughs> Can I ask a question? Is East Town a synonym for for Philadelphia, or is East Town a town in Pennsylvania? No. Okay. East Town is in Delaware County, oh. which is called Delco. Okay, okay. Delco. Okay, and where in I grew, Delco, that's where I was born. Ev- Everybody really? has Whoa. a really Delco. Yeah, Wait, is, is Tien mayor of East Town? Who who is Tien the mayor? And can I be East- the mayor? <laughs> you can be <laughs> the mayor. She's okay, mayor. Okay, okay. She's mayor, as in Marianne Sheehan. Um, ah. she is so perfect. Like she's fucked up. First, also, let's just say Kate Winslet, forty six. I'm forty five. I love seeing my people thrive. Sure, you know sure. What I mean, I mm-hmm. love seeing my people thrive. But she took this character, and unfortunately, the one interview I was able to read with Kate Winslet was from fucking Maureen Dowd. Um, But I looked the other way, and I still read it, because how she approached this role, like, once I found out how she approached it, I was like, fuck, it makes the show even better. Like, she didn't wear makeup. She made them, like, make her skin actually look chalkier. So she looked, you know, like the detective in Delco. And she didn't wash the clothes that she wore. She kept them in crinkles, like, on the floor, like Mare would have. But basically, Mare is a mom uh, of two kids, one of which was addicted to drugs and hung himself in her attic. Um, The other one, her daughter, really doesn't like her for most of the show. And what you start realizing and, like, piecing together— Gene Smart, oh, fucking genius. Oh. Is there anything yeah. Gene Smart cannot do? I'll give her all so the Emmys. She yeah. plays Mare's mother. And so Mare is basically this high school basketball star who becomes a detective. The show starts uh, learning the background that there was a crime she had not solved a year earlier. And you just, every episode. It's like, I guess the funny part of it is there's so much more to it than just the crime solving. Mm -hmm. Like you learn about the generational trauma. You start caring more about Mare's relationship with her best friend than you almost do whether she solves this crime. And uh, I I laughed. I cried. I couldn't get enough. I've watched the finale twice. Whoa. Whoa. The second time you realize you're like, whoa, the fucking score to this show is amazing. How did I not realize it the first time? And uh, all I cared about the whole time, I was crying at the end. And I was like, I just hope that she and Laura make up. Like, I hope that if this show ends and they're not back together, I just don't know what I'm going to do. But it was, uh, I just thought it was fucking great. I couldn't wait for each episode, which is why I was so mad that HBO Max kind of shit the bed and could not let, and the show crashed. I stayed up until 10 o'clock Eastern on a Sunday. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I heard about that. I heard about that too. I thought it was just me and that I was being targeted. And I was like, fucking upstate New York. And then I found out that it was everybody. And I was part of a community, including with Katie Couric, who was very upset that the show, that she had stayed up and the show wasn't on. Oh, my God. But no, I can't. Uh, I can't say enough. I've ne- I have not enjoyed a show or a finale uh, more in memory. Wow. You know— mm. Writing TV is very hard, especially if you're not writing a show that has, like, the license to be a little bit absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, there are still rules, you know, for plots, even if it's, like, you know, Rick and Morty. Rick and Morty is one of the most complicated shows on TV. Yes. Because yes. there's so much—it's really plotty, despite the fact that it's got, like, absurd space shit. You can't just break the rules. Uh, so most shows that have, like, really complicated setups, it's just— it's totally understandable, but in most cases, the writers just kind of lose it by the end, and they're like, oh, we got to figure this out. And it's like, because it's so hard to tie everything up. And Mare did. 
Mare tied everything up. Oh my God. Everything got figured out. I mean, not figured out, but everything everything was resolved. And not in this way that felt like, and it's a happy ending for everybody. This isn't it's a like, lost situation. This isn't no, a true detective no, situation. No, okay. no, this okay. is way more of a, this is closer to a Breaking Bad situation. Whoa. Then, yeah. And, and Josh, who is like a big snot about TV, was like, this is a great show. And oh you know what this, you know what I love about it? It is ultimately, and this is just me again, being a, uh, you know, this is my like feminist criticism thing, but it's ultimately a show about men fucking up and women just having to deal with it. And like, how do they handle it? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like, because all of this, all the situations that arise are like men doing something they shouldn't have done and women being left to make like a horrible decision. Like there's a, a person who has to make a decision on whether or not to like, in like split up the family of one of her friends. And like there's, uh, and that is because of something that a, a male in the family did. And like, there's all these things that happen. I just, Tien and Grace, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the show as like non-watchers. <laughs> because Alyssa and I are like, it's so, it felt like true detective season one level obsession for people. How did you avoid it? So uh, I blame Niall. Niall, I love you. I don't know if he'll listen to this. I love, he will. I love you, Niall. But Niall has a thing that has now, uh, that I've started, it's started to seep into my skin, which is why watch week to week? I want to have all the episodes available on demand. So if I really <laughs> like something, I can watch them all in one sitting or in two sittings, which I get. So that's why we haven't watched it yet. Because he's like, I don't want to start watching it. I don't want to be waiting week to week. And I don't think there were enough people in his circle who had seen it yet. And I mm. only really started to pick up like a couple of friends. I guess it was there was some big twist kind of in the middle that mm -hmm. happened and then suddenly yeah. I realized like oh 60% of the people that I know are watching it but up until that point I hadn't so anyway that's that's our excuse uh I'm gonna get on it though I'm a big I'm a big Kate Winslet fan so mm -hmm. yeah she's uh, great Tian yeah. Kate Winslet and I are fighting so <laughs> we, why no, just, <laughs> no she was an Ammonite and she uh gave a hilarious interview um, about how Ammonite is a, a a lesbian movie that was totally made up because that uh, archaeologist or bone collector was uh, wasn't queer. They apparently mm. she had a very a, a, her companion was her best companion was her dog, and they turned Circe Ronan into a dog. So, <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> um, but. I haven't watched it. Just I can't. I'm still in a place where I can't watch dark stuff right now. Um, I get it. I get it. And that's why I can't get into it. Because I do. I love Kate Winslet. I think she's amazing. And I have watched everything that she's in. And it's just, I know this is about a he heavy, heavy stuff. And I just can't. I can only do light stuff right now. I can do light, competitive cooking stuff. Oh, um, Still on my van life tours. So I can't. Are you watching Hacks? Speaking of Gene Smart. No, but I heard that's awesome too. It's it's like there's heaviness to it, okay. but it is. You will you will love it. Okay. Well, you will love it. 
I guess I just have to watch scripted stuff soon. <laughs> One day soon I will. <laughs> Do you ever feel like being in like writer's rooms or working on scripted stuff, sometimes watching things makes you feel anxiety? because 100% you're like, oh, 100% of the time. Always. <laughs> all, okay. Which is why I mostly watch dramas <laughs> yep. too, which is why I'm going to love Mare. I know that. But it's tough to watch comedies. Although Hacks is brilliant. That's how I yeah. feel too. I, I like... It gives me a lot of anxiety and stuff that I've auditioned mm. for that I didn't get. I don't oh, like yeah. to watch because it like is crushing to me because yeah. I'm always like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I shouldn't have gotten that. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it still gives me so much anxiety. So that's the other reason why. Yeah, same. Grace, I can't, yeah, I can't yeah, really yeah, do yeah, comedies yeah, yeah. right now. Oh, my God. That's. I'm. I feel so much less alone because there's. Yeah, you feel, Aaron. I, I see Aaron you. Is, I see yeah, you. I see you too. I'm like. I'm like. You know. Like. I'm like. I should be working on that pilot. Every time I do it, I'm like, why aren't I working on this thing? It's no. So it's impossible. Dumb. It's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, Alyssa, you had some thoughts on real quick. Close us out with some thoughts on the brilliance of the supporting cast. If anybody else needs to be convinced to watch it. <laughs> okay, Julianne Nicholson a.k.a. Lore, one of the greatest performances of all fucking time. Wow. I oh, mean, my God. Wow. She's so good. is so good. I mean, she, her, Jean Smart. Um, also, some of the other, like, her little deputy. I mean, I will God Zabel. love that little guy. He yeah. was so tenacious D. Like, the, like, there's not one character that by the end you weren't like, I fucking get you. Mm-hmm. Even DJ's not dad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dylan. DJ's not dad the whole time. You're just like, I think he did it. Like for episodes and episodes. I'm not telling you anything okay. that's not revealed. It's fine. I'll forget it anyway. Me too. I have but the brain of a The whole fish. time. Let me put it. Really the whole do. time you're like, he had to have done it. And then the way he reveals himself in the last episode, he does this Thing, and you're just like, oh my god! Now I'm gonna cry about yeah. this too. It was I just, was the asshole. Not I him. was the asshole. Not Dylan's. <laughs> not dad. And uh, the whole, the whole, every single person was just like, and so many people you've never heard of, Great. you know, in your life, who just kind of like got their moment. And oh, I every love an unknown. Person, Give me an unknown yeah, any day. Every literally, I think everyone other than Mayor Jean Smart and Julianne Nicholson, I had not. I don't think heard of before, but it is, it is, it is a delight. It is, they're all delightful. I hope they all win something. Yeah. Uh, Julianne Nicholson is, it's about time for her to have, like, to be the star of something. Like watching that, I was like, she's, she's got to get her own thing at this point. Yeah. It's time for her own thing. Yeah. She's got to get her own thing. Um, Okay. That is all the time we have for today. I hope that if you haven't watched Mare of Easttown, you, uh, you do, because that wasn't, we didn't spoil that much. There's like no. so much, there's so much going on that there's no way you could possibly feel like anything is spoiled. Um, thank you, Alyssa, for being my ride or die. Thank you to Tian and Grace for stopping by in two different states. Wow, we're four states. Whoa, four women oh, in four we did it, we states. did it. I love it, I love it. I want to color in a map. Um, <laughs> thank you guys both for stopping by for this great conversation. And thanks to you, the listeners. There will be more hysteria next week. Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Rustin is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. 
Alyssa Mastromonaco is our co-producer and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Our digital team is Nar Melkonian, Mia Kelman, and Matt DeGroote. Thank you to Juliet Beckstrand for production support every week. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. With blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar. Discover legendary tastes with America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois.